It is really good to be back with you guys. Went on a great vacation this week, met with some Christians up in West Virginia, and got to go rafting and hiking, and we had some Bible studies and singing all week long. And so, uh, basically, that means two things. Number one, I am completely and utterly exhausted, and I need a vacation from my vacation. But number two, I'm actually really refreshed. I'm really excited uh, about serving the Lord and about being with you guys and us helping each other get each other to heaven as we continue on the journey. That's what we were studying with the, the group that we met, we met with up in West Virginia. I, I learned lots of new songs this week, uh, especially with the kids' songs. We had a period where we would, we would sing some of the kids' songs, and so now I'm really excited about Bible drill. I want to, I, I kind of want to teach them to you right now, but, but uh, I guess we'll, we'll avoid that now, and we'll just do that later when we get into the Bible drill with the kids. But I'm really glad to be back with you and good to see you guys and hope that things went well for you. And appreciate Phil and Jonathan as they filled in their pulpit duties while I was gone. And Ron, as he taught the class for me. And we did have one little uh, mess up about the whole thing, though. Just going to fill you in on this. You know, Phil, last week was the fourth Sunday. And so last Sunday night, instead of Jonathan preaching, we were supposed to have a singing. And we missed out on that. And so what we're going to do is tonight, we're going to have our singing tonight. And uh, I'll, I'll move the sermon that I had prepared for tonight. And I do have it prepared. I'm not just trying to get out of preaching after being gone on a week of vacation. It's written. It's back there in my office. But we're going to do that next Sunday. Uh, we're going to talk about that. That one's going to be about why doesn't God answer my prayers. So we're going to talk about that next week. Before I went on my trip, though, a couple of days before that, uh, I was out to lunch with a couple of preachers. And while I was sitting there stuffing my face with great Chinese food, uh, one of the brothers just asked, just out of the blue, he said, you know, when do we cross the line into materialism? And he started talking about a friend of his and their house and their cars and their vacation trips and and his fear that perhaps this particular individual had crossed the line into materialism. And the other preacher and I, we kind of hemmed and hawed around trying to sound profound, but in the end, really all we said was, I don't know. And so I got up and grabbed my second plate at the Canton Buffet, which is a really good Chinese buffet here in Franklin. It's not quite as good as Grand Buffet in Spring Hill, but it's still pretty good. So I was getting a second plate. And as I started to heap it up, I thought, when do I cross the line into gluttony? And, you know, how many kind of questions like that do we ask? When do I cross the line? Where do I draw the line? Well, the reality is that we know what the Bible says explicitly. We know, for instance, that 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 very clearly says that greed is a sin. But we recognize that there's nowhere in the Scripture that the Bible says, here's the point at which we've crossed the line into greed. So where do we draw that line? We know, for instance, that Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25 says that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We know that. But the Bible never does clearly just tell us at what point missing the assembly has become forsaking the assembly. And so where do we draw that line? We know that Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says that the marriage bed is honorable, but the adulterer and whoremonger uh, will be judged. We know that sexual immorality is unlawful and ungodly. God has just, just clearly said that. But the Bible has never told us exactly when physical contact becomes sexual immorality. It's holding hands, hugging too long, kissing. When, when exactly... Does it become sexual immorality? Where 
draw the line? It's a tough question. And I want us to talk about that. It wasn't a question you really had to answer, Ryan. You can put your hand down. Thank you. But, yes, i got to tell you, this, this trip we went on, we had lots of studies, and somebody taught a class to the kids, and they must have done just a bang-up job, because Ethan came into my room last night and said, Daddy, tomorrow I'm going to help you preach your sermon. Because I learned in my class this week that I'm supposed to do loving things for my parents. Isn't that great? Appreciate that, buddy. So I had to tell him this morning, well, here's the best way that you can help me. Pay attention, take notes, and say amen every once in a while. So if you hear that from the front, that's what's happening. Okay? Anyway, where do we draw these lines? That's what we want to talk about for just a few moments this morning. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you and we praise your name. And what we want most of all is to glorify you and lift you up so that you can be honored, so that the world can be drawn to you, and they can see your Son and have forgiveness within it. We pray that you would help us because as we struggle to draw close to you, as we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, we're not always sure exactly what we should do and, and how far we should go and where we should stop. And we pray that you would help us to open your word and allow it to be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet so that we can glorify and honor you and draw those lines in, in places that help us serve you the most. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. Here's the thing I want you to understand. Before we actually get into answering this question and, and providing some, some great counsel from the Word of God on, on how to draw these lines in our lives personally, I, I think that first we have to understand what a real problem this is. Sometimes we ask this question and we're thinking about it just very academically. It's just we're, we're trying to dot the I's and cross the T's and, and build the boxes and make sure we don't ever go in the wrong place. And it becomes a very academic discussion. And we argue about whether or not we can have one drink or if it's about being drunk. And we get into definitions of words and all that. The, the thing that I need you to understand is that this question is not academic. The problem here is not about academia. It's not about intellectual. It's not about finding the exact definitions of all the boxes and all the lines. This is, this is not an academic problem. This is a, this is a soul-shattering problem. And potentially, if we don't answer this question well, the problem is not that we're going to get the answer wrong on a test. The problem is it could destroy our souls. And the reason it could destroy our souls is not necessarily that we might get it wrong about whether or not this one little particular action is a sin or not, but it might destroy our souls because if we don't answer these questions about where we're going to draw these lines well, the line keeps moving. And sin sucks us in and destroys us. Romans chapter 7 demonstrates the real problem here. Romans chapter 7 demonstrates exactly why we need to be concerned about drawing these lines well, and especially young people. I'm hoping that you're listening very intently this morning because really with you, this is a big thing because you can save yourself a lot of heartache if you don't get into all the academic discussions and try to figure out exactly what you're allowed to do. If you just step back and draw these lines well, there's a lot of sin and a lot of turmoil and a lot of stress and, and, and guilt that you can avoid if you learn to answer these questions well, you see Romans 7 and verse 7, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good, in verse 13, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I, excuse me, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that is good, so it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We've studied this passage before, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but I want you to notice here's the problem, and this is why answering the question here about where do we draw the line is so important, because of the things that sin does. We first learn that sin distorts God's law. Back in verse 8, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment. It distorts God's law, but then sin deceives us. Verse 11 says, For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. Sin offers us what it can't ever actually give us. It tells us that it's only going to take us so far, but it's going to lead us a lot farther. Sin distorts God's law. Sin deceives us, but then sin destroys us. Again, in verse 11, it says it deceived me and through it killed me. And then in verse 13, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might show and be sin. Sin produced death in Paul. It destroyed him. But it doesn't stop there. Sin distorts God's law. It deceives us. It destroys us. But it won't stop there. It dominates us. It takes control. When we give our lives to sin, when we start drawing these lines, when we draw them into the wrong places, sin sucks us into it, and it begins to dominate our lives. And one day, we all wake up, and we say the exact same thing Paul did in verse 15. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, and I do the very thing I hate. And in verse 14, I'll get it out in a minute. Verse 19, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Anybody else ever been there? I've been there. We've all been there. You know what that is? That's because we didn't answer this question right. And we drew that line, and we got up to it, and then we moved it again, and we moved it again, and moved it again, and then we wake up, and we're exactly right here. This is not an academic question. This is a soul-shattering question. Question. The problem is, when we're arguing about the lines, we rarely think of it like that. Instead, we convince ourselves that our little forays into whatever issue we're talking about is at a safe level. Nobody, when they first crossed that one little line, thought that sin was going to then dominate their lives. Let me share with you the story of Dave B. You see, nobody ever thinks when they take that first drink of alcohol that it's going to dominate them. Nobody thinks that. They're just arguing about whether or not it's all right for Christians to have one drink. I want to share with you the story of Dave B. that comes from the big book, which is the manual for Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, Dave B. wasn't thinking, 
that when he took his first drink that it was going to destroy and dominate his life, he was just worried that his friends in high school wouldn't like him if he didn't go along with their idea to have a drink. Who knew that it would get him into an accident that would cost him half his foot, crack his skull? Who knew that it would cause him to have a brain hemorrhage that would cause half of his body to be paralyzed? Who knew that it would cause him to go into jail and into psychiatric hospitals? Who knew that it would cost him his job? Who knew that it would almost cost him his family before he started the road to recovery? You see, he had no idea any of those things would happen. He didn't know that sin was going to dominate his life. Well, he was just worried about whether or not it was okay to have that one drink socially with his friends because he was afraid they wouldn't like it. Or let me share with you another one. The personal story told in the White Book. That is the manual for Sexaholics Anonymous. Nobody, nobody, when they take their first foray into lust or sexual immorality, ever thinks that it's going to dominate their life. But who knew about this unnamed individual that lust and sexual addiction was going to take control? Who knew that it was going to cost him his education in seminary Cost him his job as an assistant at a local congregation. Who knew it would do that? How was he to know that it was going to lead him to prostitutes to try to get his sexual fix? And even finally, in order to save money, to become a pimp himself. Who knew that because it was going to take him into the worst parts of town, that he was going to be putting his life on the line every day, not only from sexually transmitted diseases, but from the criminals that were a part of that society? Who knew that would happen? Who knew that it was going to cause him to be arrested by the vice squad? And in that moment, thank God finally for the wake-up call that he needed, swear off sexual immorality, but the moment he was released, be right back looking for his next sexual hit. Who knew that it was going to destroy his family, cost him his relationship with his wife and his kids, before he finally started the road to recovery? Nobody ever thinks that. You want to know how his descent to sexual domination started? This is pretty amazing. From his own words. He was born in the 1930s. He said it began with Flash Gordon comics. Azura, the queen of magic, the scantily clad queen of magic, destroyed him when he was a child and he didn't even know it. You see, answering this question is important. Not because we want to academically dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but because we want to avoid sin's domination. Now, let me give you a couple of disclaimers. I recognize that not everybody, I mean, I understand this, even though I think it's unlawful for you, and we can talk about it later if you want to dot the I's and cross the T's on, even though I think it's unlawful for you to have a, a drink of alcohol. We're not saying that any person who ever has a sip of alcohol is suddenly going to become an, an alcoholic and anybody who's ever seen a scantily clad woman in a comic book is suddenly going to become a sexual addict. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing out that if we don't draw these lines well in the beginning, sin will deceive us, destroy us, and dominate us. And I also understand from Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God that none of us are going to avoid sin's domination completely. But I tell you what, that's no reason for us to just go wholesale into sin. Let's learn to answer these questions well so that we can overcome and avoid so much of the sorrow that comes with it. So I want to share with you some guideposts 
I want to share with you some guideposts along the path that will help us. I just I want you to think about this. Here's what I want you to picture in your mind. Going from your feet right now, in just a few minutes, you're going to stand up and you're going to walk out of this building. And I want you to envision, just going out before you, there are two different paths. One is God's narrow path of righteousness, and the other one is the broad way of wickedness and unrighteousness. But here's what I want you to picture as it's it's leaving your feet. At the very beginning, the paths are so close together, they're practically indistinguishable. And then as they start to progress on, they're so close together, it almost appears that they're going to the same place. And, and even if they're not, it's just so easy to get back and forth on them, it really doesn't matter. We, we can just follow this broad path over here and, and, and then hop over when we've finally gone far enough. But the problem is, it's very deceptive. The further down that path we get, the farther apart they are. And it's not easy to go back and forth. We pass what you might call a point of no return. Not that you can't, not, not that you ever get to a point that you just absolutely can't come back to God. But you get to a point where it's so hard that most folk, most people won't even try. Because you see, the path of following Jesus, while it's always simple, is never easy once you've been dominated by sin. And so, what we want to think about is, is while it's up close and, we're, and it's looking almost indistinguishable, how can we tell it apart? I want to share with you six guideposts that will help. And, and, and kind of an illustration. It reminds me, just the other day, we were, we were trying to get to, uh, we were up in West Virginia, we were trying to get to what was called Hawk's Nest National Park or State Park or whatever it was. We were going to take this air tram ride and ride on a boat. And we're following the road and we had to follow up. Highway 19 from where we were camping, and then we had to go west on Highway 60 and follow the signs. And after a while, I suddenly realized, I haven't seen any signs for Highway 60 lately. I'll tell you, I am notoriously bad about that. That happens all the time. I'll be driving down a road and, and come out of whatever mental reverie is going on and suddenly realize, I don't know if I'm on the right road. I may have missed a turn. You know, you get into these little bitty towns and all of a sudden at the square, you know, you're heading one direction and you're supposed to turn right to stay on the same highway. I miss those all the time. And after a while, I suddenly realized, wait a minute, okay, we're, I've got to start looking for signs. I've got to start looking for guideposts. I'm supposed to be traveling west on Highway 60. So I'm looking for that. And if I don't see it pretty soon, I'm, okay, it's time to double back and go find one so that I know which direction I'm going. I want you to think of it like that. It's just like that. We're trying to figure out, where do I draw the line? What am I allowed to do? What should I do? And perhaps that's a better way to ask it. Instead of asking, what am I allowed to do? What should I do in order to stay on God's right path? These are six questions that you can ask. It's just like looking for the sign that says you're on the right road. Are you ready? Young people, please listen up. This is important. This is so important. You you just have no idea, and there's really no way for me to express it to you. You look at me and you think I'm crazy. I don't have any idea what I'm talking about about it because I know your life is good. But I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, if you don't pay attention to this now, you're going to end up being my age, and you're going to say to yourself, I wish somebody had told me these things. And so I'm going to stamp it on your mind right now. If you ever hear yourself saying, I wish somebody had told you these things, I want you to remember, oh, wait, Edwin told me these things. Okay, just remember that. Because I'm sure that somebody probably told me these things when I was young, but I still say today, I wish somebody had told me. I'm telling you now, okay? Number one, can I do this in the name of the Lord? Colossians chapter 3 
and verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Doing something in the name of the Lord means being able to do it with His authority, being able to do it with His blessing. Whatever you're about to do, you need to ask yourself the question, if Jesus were standing right here, could I look at Him in the eye and say, Lord, I am doing this with Your blessing. That drink that you're about to take, can you say, Lord, I am doing this with Your blessing. That food that you're about to eat or the amount of it that you're about to eat, can you say, Lord, I am doing this with your blessing? That party that you're about to go to, can you say, Lord, I am doing this with your blessing? Whatever you're about to touch, can you say, Lord, I am doing this with your blessing? If you can't, if you have to say no to that question, then draw the line. And whether or not it's absolutely a sin doesn't matter. If you can't say in your mind, yes, I am doing this by the authority and blessing of Jesus Christ, then don't do it. Remember what Romans chapter 14 and verse 23 says. Romans chapter 14 and verse 23. The passage there says, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever is not perceived from faith is sin. If you can't do it with faith that you're doing what's right with the blessing and authority of Jesus Christ, then just don't do it. I don't care what the scholars say. I don't care what the academics say. I don't really care what the academically correct answer to the question is. If you can't do it with faith that what you're doing is right in the name of the Lord, then just don't do it. Because if it's not from faith, then it's sin. Number two, am I pursuing a course of the flesh or following the lead of the Spirit? With whatever it is that I'm about to do, with whatever it is that I'm doing, am I pursuing a course following the lusts and desires of my flesh? Or am I following the lead of the Spirit? Y'all know where I'm going here, don't you? Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we have a list of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 16 of Galatians 5 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We need to ask ourselves the question. In these lists, what I'm about to do, what does it most seem like? And we need to ask ourselves the question, that party that I'm about to go to, is it more like the joy and peace of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it more like the drunkenness and orgies of the works of the flesh? This thing that I'm about to do with my boyfriend or girlfriend, is it more like the love and peace of the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it more like the sensuality and sexual immorality of the works of the flesh? What is it? Am I following the passions of the flesh or the lead of the Spirit? Ask yourself that question. 
Number three, am I providing for the lust of the flesh? This is really an extension of the last one. Am I providing for the lust of the flesh? I recently read a great definition of lust. The definition was that lust is using a natural instinct to accomplish unnatural desires. Using a natural instinct to accomplish unnatural desires. For instance, if I'm eating to fulfill my boredom, or my loneliness, or my depression and stress. See, God didn't give us food to overcome boredom, depression, stress, and loneliness. God gave us food so that we could survive. See, I'm, and so if I have that lust for food to accomplish all those things, that's, an un, that's a natural instinct to accomplish an unnatural desire. If I'm drinking, especially alcohol, to relax, to be able to socialize better. See, I, natural instinct, unnatural desire. Sexual immorality. If I'm pursuing sexual gratification, to deal with depression, bitterness, resentment, anger. See, natural instinct, unnatural desire. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, why am I pursuing this? Am I just providing for the lust of my flesh? Am I just pursuing a course, using what God has given in a way that He hasn't given it to me for? And then we take that, that next step. Maybe what I'm doing right now isn't exactly going into that lust of the flesh, but I'm providing for it. I'm making the way for it. I'm I'm, I'm cutting my path in that direction. I mean, let's face it. Let's think about this. I I understand. I know this. Going to the beach, mixed bathing, going to the water parks, that's not the same as sexual immorality. I know that. But where do we really think that's going to lead? I understand that, that going to the water park with all those bikini-clad women is not the same as lusting for them, but what do you think is going to happen when you get there? If the only reason you're saying I'm going to go is because oh, I know I'm not going to lust, now how are you going to guarantee that? Do you remember what Romans 7 said about Paul when he said that he, he cut, that the law, that, excuse me, let me back up, that sin took opportunity through the law and produced all manner of coveting in him? i got to tell you, when you're saying, I'm going to go to all those bikini-clad women and I am not going to lust, you know what's talking right there? Sin. And it's deceiving you. And it will suck you in, it will destroy you, and it will dominate you. So ask yourself, am I providing for the lust of the flesh. And as you answer that question, don't let sin deceive you. Number four, what hunger am I filling with this action? What hunger am I filling with this action? Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This thing that you're about to do, this path upon which you are walking, What hunger is it filling? Is it filling your hunger for righteousness or some other hunger? You want a promotion at work. Why? What hunger is it filling? 
I'm not saying that getting promotions at work are wrong, but if the only hunger it's filling is your hunger for power and prestige and materialism, then you're walking the path of unrighteousness. If, on the other hand, you're following the path of righteousness, you're doing the best job you possibly can so God can be glorified for you and you get your promotion, that's great. But I'm just telling you, if you're hungry for your promotion so that you can have power and prestige and that's what hunger you're feeling, then you're going the wrong way. What hunger am I feeling with this? Number five. Am I professing godliness? In 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, have nothing to do with irreverent silliness. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and the life that is to come. And then back up a page to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10 as Paul was telling Timothy to talk to the women about the way they dressed modestly and with self-control. He says in verse 10, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. This thing that I'm about to do, this path upon which I'm walking, am I professing godliness? Godliness, as we learned in our class just a few moments ago out here in the auditorium, is the idea of revering and honoring and, and holding God in awe. Is the thing that I'm about to do, is, is that what it's doing? Is it proclaiming honor and piety and reverence toward God? Or is it honoring me and seeking my will? Which way is it going? Am I professing godliness with the way I walk and talk and dress? and act in the places that I go? Or am I professing something else? And very much akin to that is number six. Do my actions demonstrate that I am set apart for holiness and sanctification? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, excuse me, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Sanctification and holiness is what I'm doing, demonstrating that I have been set apart for sanctification and holiness. Or does it demonstrate something else? You know, we could ask this question, and perhaps the last one, in another way. We could ask this, what am I advertising? What am I advertising? Am I advertising godliness, holiness, and sanctification? Or am I advertising something else? I saw a preview for a movie. I refused to go see the movie after I saw the preview. I don't even remember the name of it. Um, and I, I think it's Diane Keaton and Mandy Moore. And she's the daughter and uh, the Diane Keaton character looks at the daughter and the way she's dressed, she says, you look like you're asking for it. And the daughter said, well, I am asking for it. See, she was advertising something. Was it sanctification and holiness? Or was she advertising sexual immorality? What am I advertising? What am I demonstrating? That I am set apart for God and for holiness and for sanctification? Or am I instead demonstrating that I'm just like everybody else 
fitting in with the worldly and the immoral. If you've ever been on a highway and suddenly realize that you don't know if you're where you're supposed to be, you know how important it is to look for the guideposts. These may not be all the guideposts we could come up with, but I think these are six pretty powerful guideposts that can help us determine whether or not we're on the right path. Can I do this in the name of the Lord? Am I pursuing a course of the flesh or following the lead of the Spirit? Am I providing for the lust of the flesh? What hunger am I filling? Am I professing godliness? Am I demonstrating that I have been set apart for holiness? and sanctification. If we could learn to ask these questions, we'll draw the lines in the right place. And and again, I'm just going to tell you, you know what? It's not going to matter if crossing that line a few feet would still be okay with God. See, that's not the point. The point is not dotting the I's and crossing the T's and making sure we just get it all right so that we can have all the arguments about what exactly is sin and what's not. The point of this is to learn how to avoid sin's domination because sin will deceive you and sin will destroy you. So answer these questions well and start young. But if you didn't start young, start now. I don't want to leave you without hope because I imagine, in fact, I know that most of you here are like me. And that is, you've already blown it. And you've already been dominated by sin. I don't want you to think that it's too late for you. I don't want you to think that you can't get on the path with God. In fact, if we go back to Romans chapter 7, In verse 24, Paul said in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. My translation puts an exclamation point on that. See, that sentence is not just, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That sentence says, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what that sentence says. Jesus can deliver us if we submit to Him. We do things His way, starting now. Jesus can deliver us.